I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, this is going to be the fourth interview with Rory McDougall as we continue his travels around the world in a small catamaran. Before that, let me suggest that you sign up for my email list. And if you do, you get eight of the 16 lessons for the ASA 101 series, the basic keelboat certification, free. And if you like that, you might buy some of my other products. Uh, that's really going to be about it for the introduction. I want to get straight on into the interview. But before that, if you like this podcast, please go into the iTunes directory and give it a give it a review. I'd really appreciate it. All right, now on with Rory. All right, Rory, welcome back. Now, the last time we talked... And that was, I think, the third episode of our adventures of of you telling us how you sailed around the world on your catamaran cookie. You had arrived at your your intermediate goal, which was New Zealand, and you said you spent uh, was it a couple of years in New Zealand, Rory, or how long did you end up staying there? Actually, overall, I spent nearly four years there. Uh, I am most of those in, in Auckland, and uh, the last summer I was uh, working up at the Bay of Islands, and I, I spent time up there before I set and sail again. So, uh, so yeah, no, it was a, a really good time. As I said, I mean, my girlfriend at the time uh, had moved out there, and so that was my primary goal, to reunite with her and, uh, and also uh, hang up the sea boots for a while because I felt like uh, I'd, I'd sprinted out there um, by sailing out there in a year and, um, and the pressure was on to sort of uh, get down there obviously financially and then um, with the weather sort of patterns but um, no I thoroughly enjoyed New Zealand fantastic place uh, loved the uh, loved the people loved the just the adventure and outdoor kind of lifestyle down there and um, I spent time doing some high-tech boat building um, house renovating and uh, some boat refits for people. And then I sort of got away from the um, hands-on boat building side and uh, did quite a bit of volunteering with the sail training organization down there, the Spirit of Adventure. And that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then for the last sort of year or two I was there, I got into yacht charter um, company and, and started skippering and then also working um, with uh, with the boats, turning them around, and then getting the management side. So you know, ultimately, I uh, had uh, had a lot of good uh, good adventures and a lot of good good work to keep me busy down there. If you you know, this has been 
something I tell people all the time is, is, is when you usually have a goal like you did and you felt like you sprinted down. Um, and, and when I sailed across the Atlantic, I sort of felt I sprinted over. In, in hindsight, I wish I had spent uh, a month kicking around the Azores and visiting the Azores. As it was, it was a fairly short period of time. What would you do if you did it all over again would you spend a lot more time sailing around some of the Polynesian islands? What would you do differently getting to this part of your goal? Oh, for sure. It would uh, it would be very different. Obviously, I was under budget constraints a lot of the time, so uh, I ended up <clears throat> sort of get going to places that were simple and, and quiet and, uh, and no marinas involved or anything like that. Um, and, you know, I think going across the Pacific, um, I don't think I really missed out in the in the mm -hmm. Caribbean side and the Atlantic side. I felt like I, I obviously explored quite a bit of those areas before even setting sail on Cookie. But going across the Pacific, uh, I definitely would have chosen a different route and uh, stopped off at a lot more places and taken a full season or two going across down to New Zealand, I think. Um, if I'd had uh, more time and money on my hands, places like um, the Galapagos, I would have stopped off there and, uh, and explored the marine parks and, 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 and some of the wildlife and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there would have been a lot, lot more different um, approaches. But um, I was young and I was, um, you know, I had this adventure in mind. And when I look back on it, Franz, I think uh, if, if Cookie was a lot bigger and a lot more comfortable and, uh, you know, I had a lot more company uh, and, and even a partner aboard with me, then you, you kind of have that mindset to just take your time, go with the flow, and you've got all your creature comforts with you. But the fact was Cookie was – she was comfortable and she was uh, – uh, but uh, life aboard was hard at times, and so – in many respects, having a, a goal and a carrot and a, and a strong drive to get somewhere and accomplish something was probably what was needed because I, I maybe, maybe I would have given up a um, hundred times if I <laughs> just had this, had a sort of a follow the, follow the wind and follow my nose type of uh, attitude and, and just see where the, um, where the elements take me. I probably would have just um, stopped off at a place and, and decided to stay. <laughs> If you had to choose a route back through the Pacific, knowing what you know now, what route would you take? Yeah, assuming assuming money wasn't a big object and you had a reasonably comfortable boat, what 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 route would you take? I would definitely take because also I've ha I have experienced um, going down to uh, Easter Island, which was such a, a momentous um, landfall. It was great being there. But now that I've done that, of course, this time around, I would definitely do the more of the uh, conventional route, which is uh, the Marquesas and uh, down through the uh, Tuamotus and, and sort of hopping away across that way and getting down to Tonga and exploring some of Tonga and uh, the Cook Islands a bit more before heading down to New Zealand. That would be, I would be more, much more in the trade winds and up in the, uh, in the thick of the islands, island hopping away. And because ultimately, um, I think most of us can agree that ocean passages can be a uh, an adventure, they can be a milestone, and they can be a sense of reward. But ultimately, they're pretty boring and monotonous. 
um, getting through it. So I think most of us really enjoy the the landfalls, the new cultures, the meeting people and uh, exploring ashore, all of those sides of things when we go cruising. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm, I love day sailing. I, I love hopping from port to port to port in the Mediterranean. That's one of the things that, that's kept me there for, for so many years. All right. So now you spent four years in New Zealand. What was a catalyst then to push you on your way, I guess? Well, I guess after probably uh, about nearly three years um, together with Lara, we went our separate ways again. She was um, uh, studying for her teaching degree, and um, and I was uh, doing my sort of uh, sail training on the boats and uh, getting into yacht charter. And we just decided, you know, kind of grew apart a little bit. So I moved back aboard Cookie and uh, put some creature comforts aboard. I made a big deck tent to, uh, to totally enclose the cockpit and deck area and put a battery and a solar panel and a bit of music and a few lights on board. So starting to get um, Cookie uh, into, the, into the 20th century at least, maybe not the 21st, but, um, and made life a bit more comfortable for, for living aboard again. And, um, and then I moved up to the Bay of Ireland with this yacht charter job and was up there for a as I said, the last summer working up there. And I started meeting up with a lot more of the, uh, the round-the-world cruisers that were pulling into New Zealand for their sort of summer, summer season, escaping the cyclones. And it really was a good catalyst talking to them all uh, about their future plans, where they were going next, their route through um, Indonesia and uh, through to Singapore, etc. So it kind of fired me up to, to say, well, look, I'm, I'm out of a relationship again. I'm, I'm back aboard Cookie Living and kind of got my juices flowing again just being back aboard the boat. And uh, I, I, I realized that the dream that I'd, I'd started was still inside me to actually finish the round-the-world trip. And, um, and I think also because I'd had such a pasting and, uh, and, and a hard-harrowing time getting down to New Zealand in the first place, I think in, by, by, um, by sort of a natural order, I needed, I needed a good break. I needed a few years away from the boat and the sea just to sort of get, uh, get the sort of uh, hankering again to, um, to get over, um, I guess, the, uh, the shell shock of the, uh, those storms and, and half starving to death and wondering if I was ever going to make it to New Zealand. So uh, that was all way back in the... Uh, the distance and the back of my memory and so uh, I was starting to get excited to go to sea again <laughs> <laughs> yeah we forget the uh we forget the pain and remember the adventure don't we <laughs> <laughs> yeah we our, our minds are very selective that way we do tend to remember the good stuff which is a which is a good thing <laughs> uh so uh, so yeah I uh, I got, got cookie organized I I made a few additions with the sail inventory as well I bought a big second-hand drifter um, Genoa-type sail and got it recut so that I had a, uh, a, a much larger head sail to be able to go to windward and light winds and also to set it off the windward bow when I was um, on a broad reach to really get the boat going. And I also uh, made up a storm jib and a, um, and a, and a tri-sail, and I made myself up a drogue and a sea anchor as well, a bigger sea anchor than I had before uh, to really stop the boat and bring the bows up into the waves. So I, I made quite a few additions 
from the experience that I'd had before of, of trying to sort of be, be seaworthy in gales. And, um, and I needed a few more things in my armory for that. So, so yeah, I, I, I felt a, quite a bit more prepared in some ways and off on the second leg. All right. So when did you cut loose and head off? What time of year was it? Um, it was in May, because um, obviously that's starting to come through the uh, through the summer and, and, and transition into the winter, which is midwinter is, uh, I guess, middle of June and start of July in the southern hemisphere. So the weather weather was starting to turn, and uh, we took off. And by this stage, I actually got quite a lot of offers for crew um, when I took off, which was good. Uh, I had a friend of a friend. Christine, who uh, joined me to take off across the uh, Tasman, and we set sail from uh, the Bay of Islands and up to Gladstone in um, in Australia. So that's just sort of uh, above Brisbane, kind of at the start of the of the Barrier Reef up in Queensland. So it's about I think about a fourteen hundred mile trip, and uh, we took off. And ran into a, an easterly gale after the first uh, two or three days, and that was okay. We kept kept going under drogue, and then finally spent a night on the sea anchor just to keep everything safe and sound. And um, of course, living New Zealand, I had all of the um, jokes and and uh, leg pulling from my friends about the fact that Christine was a psychiatrist, and so everyone was saying that she was going to do a good head case on me going across the. <laughs> The Tasman, but funny enough, uh, she found out a few uh, few details about herself. Uh, she didn't really get claustrophobic, but what she did get was when she was uh, coming up for her watch and wriggling into wet weather gear down below, and uh, putting on her her uh, equipment and boots and that sort of thing. Just just the nature of being in a small space and being thrown thrown around. She used to get really angry and fuming. Um, and she's not normally an angry person, so she was pretty surprised uh, <laughs> at uh, how angry and, and steaming she got. In fact, she couldn't even talk to me for the first couple of minutes when she came up on deck until she just sort of calmed down and took a few breaths of fresh air outside and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, she, she actually found, uh, found that she was doing a bit of a head case on herself. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, we had a good good trip across the Tasman. We had another westerly front come through, so we hove to again for a night and a good mix of weather seeing us on our way. And uh, it took us, I think, about two weeks to get across uh, an average sort of um, length of time for our ocean crossings, about 100 miles a day. And um, we made a good landfall through the uh, passage, the southern passage of the Barrier Reef where it starts, and uh, and into Gladstone. And uh, and so our adventures started in Australia. All right, so I'm looking at Google Maps. Where's Gladstone? Is that around Sydney? No, if you go, if you look, find where Brisbane is, it's north of Brisbane by I think about uh, two to three hundred miles. Um, okay, so you were heading pretty much north, uh, north, northwest. Then is what it looks like. Then, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Leaving New Zealand, we sort of headed north. Uh, until the easterlies blew strong, and then we um, we kind of headed uh, straight west for a while. Okay, I um, see it there. Yeah, yeah, kind of at, right at the start of this sort of main barrier reef there, um, and uh, and so yeah, we uh, we made a landfall there. Christine headed off home from there, um, 
back to New Zealand. And then a, a friend of mine that I was working with in the in the yacht charter business, she lived up uh, up in the Whitsundays. In what Australia. what was her name again? We so we cut out there. Okay, her name is Kerry. Okay, and, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So she, yeah, she she um she jumped on a bus and and uh, came down to Gladstone and helped me sail the um I think again about um, three four hundred miles up the coast is a long way around Australia that's for sure. Now up now what, Sundays. while you're heading around Australia, are you doing day stops or are you just doing long passages again like you're used to, or were you because you could be hopping from port to port up the coast, couldn't you? Yeah, that's pretty much what we did. Um, I was uh, my dad actually lived up in Townsville, which is north of the um, north of the Whitsundays area. So I kind of had been in touch with him, and uh, he knew I was on my way. And uh, so I was kind of heading up towards uh, up Townsville to spend a bit of time with my dad and my long lost relatives, my cousins that I hadn't seen for well for years and years and years. So I. Um, I was uh, making good time to get up there. So when uh, when Kerry joined us, what we would do is typically do day sails um, and then stop off at night if there was a convenient um, anchorage or bay to pull into. Um, but uh, we, I think we did one overnight uh, sail as well with Kerry. But no, going up the coast generally, I started to do a lot more day sailing and pull into, uh, pull into the lovely harbors and, and islands on the way for sure. Okay, so you're heading all the way up up north then. So where are the Gladstones? Yeah. Is that right at the very top of uh, of Australia here, or is that farther down? The I'm sorry, the Whit, the Whitsunday Islands. I'm sorry, I said Gladstone. Yeah. The Whitsundays. I think they're about sort of halfway between. If you find um, Mackay and Townsville, they're sort of halfway between there. It's a place called Airlie Beach. Okay. Excuse me. Is the is the harbour uh, and the and the town on the mainland, and then you've got the Whitsunday Islands as a gathering. It's probably about um, excuse me, about a dozen dozen oh. sort of larger islands in a group. Okay, I'm seeing it now. And you know, my son-in-law and and my daughter uh, did charter a boat while they were living in Australia in the Whitsundays, and they enjoyed it. They had a great time there. They chartered a boat and went out for about a week, week and a half, and had a great time there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's up in the trade wind belt up there, so you get good sou'easterlies blowing pretty much year-round. Um, a bit seasonal at times, but certainly during the winter, you get good sou'easters uh, of 20 knots, 25 knots, um, pretty consistently. So Cookie was surfing a lot, and uh, you know, all the crew that joined me were just having a ball. Um, it's hard hard sometimes just getting the helm off them because they just wanted to steer and surf and um, have a have a great old time. So <laughs> now you've got um, pretty flat water there too, don't you? Because of the barrier reef. Yeah, yeah. You get uh, you get a sort of a chop building up to about um, five feet, uh, maybe six feet at times. But otherwise, you don't don't get any big ocean swells coming through because yeah, the uh, the barrier reef pretty much breaks that up. Uh, Totally. So it's uh, it's good it's good sailing, and um, so yeah, Kerry came up to the Whitsundays with me, and I sort of dropped her off pretty much on a doorstep, and uh, and then it was really only an overnight sail from there to get up to Townsville, about um, 120 miles or so up the coast. So uh, I took off the next day and did an overnight, and um, and my dad welcomed me in 
um, came out in a little speedboat and um, was very chuffed that I'd finally made it to his uh, to his hometown. <laughs> and I ended up spending, I think I ended up staying, ooh, I think about uh, two, maybe even three months in Townsville. I was there just uh, just having some rest, recoup, and and, um, and meeting up with family, as I said, and also building up my um, my cruising kitty as well, just making sure that I wasn't spending too much. So I had a job for a while, um, helping a guy uh, frame up a um, a mold for a big um, a big powerboat, and so I had about a month of work month work while I was there, and uh, and then set off. And my dad actually joined me for I think. Um, about five days or so, and we sailed an island, hopped our way north uh, up to Cairns. Okay. And uh, and so we uh, just stopped up there. My dad used to be in the navy, and uh, and he he was actually part of the um, Sea Cadets or Naval Cadets organization. So once we got to Cairns, he, he sort of called up a mate and pulled a few strings, and we actually pulled up alongside the big naval uh, pontoons for the night. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I did a quick slideshow for the naval cadets up in uh, up in Cairns as well, just to sort of uh, tell them the story so far and give them a few um, a few sort of images and uh, try and inspire a few young sailors to do some madcap things. <laughs> yeah, so Cairns was fun, and uh, my dad headed off on a bus again, and uh, I had a crew change again. I was in touch with a friend of mine that I'd known since I was about. 15, 16, and uh, Nikki, I met her in the Caribbean when I was on my parents' boat years ago. And we kind of kept in touch over the years, the odd letter here and there. And so she was keen to come along and do some sailing. So she flew up from Sydney and joined me in Cairns and joined me for the for the northern part of Australia, up, up around Cape York and all the way across uh, to the sort of northwest tip of, um, of Darwin. And uh, and so she was with me probably for about three weeks. Uh, I think that that, uh, that took overall to get out to Darwin. So yeah, we had a lot of fun together, and uh, and it was just plain you know, it's a similar sort of sailing as we said before, flat water inside the reef. You know, you had to keep on your navigation game and uh, not get lost, but um, ultimately it was pretty easy. A lot of good charts and that sort of thing, and uh, good steady trade winds. It just got hotter and hotter as you got to the top of Australia. You're getting up into the real tropical belt, and uh, some of the calmer days, it was just um, so hot that uh, the only way to keep cool was to keep your T-shirt on and grab buckets of seawater and just pour it over yourself, your head, and that sort of thing. Keep a, um, a baseball cap on and wet that down as well. And so, you know, when you've got wet clothes on, the uh, the evaporation of, of the uh, water from your clothes keeps you cooler than if you didn't uh, didn't have anything uh, you know, no t-shirt on and that sort of thing so yeah it, uh, that was about the um, the main sort of hardship we had otherwise it was an easy sailing all the way had you rigged up any shade on your boat at this point in time or were you pretty much exposed to the sun all day long well, when when Cookie's sailing, the mainsail is only about two feet above the uh, the trampoline area. Okay. Um, and so you know, uh, unless you're very, unless you're sort of out in the ocean and just sort of doing passages without any course changes and and that sort of thing, um, it's a bit sort of hard. But we we would sort of rig up a a shade if it got really calm, 
you would rig up one of the sails and just put it over a um a rope or two between the shrouds and, and make something up but ultimately no just lots of sunblock lots of um hats and uh and and cool t-shirts put on that sort of thing and that kept us uh kept us protected as much as we could from the sun yeah yeah i notice on my boat in in the mediterranean i'm hiding from the sun all the time and and i have a a, a tarp that's over my cockpit not a tarp but basically like a bimini not not a true bimini but uh sort of a yeah. bimini over my cockpit yeah. and everybody and if anybody's in the cockpit they're always trying to hug the uh, the little bit of shade that that throws down <laughs> there's you're yeah. you're really looking for shade and you know our you know most of the time the sun's on the wrong side the sail the shade on a, on a regular uh, keel boat you don't have as much opportunity to uh to get the shade from the main so i know i'm always looking for shade on my boat and trying to figure out how i can get more shade but uh, that's it yeah yeah well obviously on cookie being a wider platform there was always a always a shady spot with the uh with the sail somewhere unless uh unless the sun's right up overhead um <clears throat> but also on cookie you're low to the sea and um you, you often get splashed just just from the waves coming by and uh being on the middle of the boat on a net, you get a fair bit of airflow underneath you as well. It's not like you're sort of sitting on a um, on a hard fiberglass or wooden deck that's heating up in the in the midday sun as well. The the trampoline was always a pretty cool place to be. All right. So where did you uh, did you get all the way up to the very? I'm sure you did. You got up to the north of Australia, and, and uh, where did you head from there? It looks like there's some Turtlehead Islands, and I'm looking at Albany Islands. It doesn't look like it's very well populated up on the northern, the very northern tip of Australia. No, <clears throat> it was interesting. Going, going north from Cairns, the next sort of fairly big settlement uh, or town was uh, Cooktown, um, so-called, obviously, after Captain Cook, because once, um, once he holds his boat on Endeavour Reef, when he was making his way and, and, and you know obviously exploring through the area without any charts, he um, he pulled into Cooktown and had to fix his boat there. Had to sort of uh, I think um, replace some planks and some sprung planks on the bottom. So he was there for quite a while, and then um, then he took off from there. And it's quite interesting because the names of all the points and the headlands, etc., um, north of there, he was obviously getting really sick of being. Uh, hemmed in by this barrier reef and having to work his way up um, carefully and not run aground anywhere because you'd sort of get to headlands called um, Desolation Point and (laughs) (laughs) sort of Cape Turnaround and, uh, you know, you could just imagine, oh, I've had enough of this point. (laughs) I just want to go home bay. (laughs) It was um, quite interesting to sort of uh, see the, the, the... the actual names given to the uh, to the points on the chart from then on, but um, yeah, we headed up uh, up there and got to the top of Australia, um, Cape York, and um, we stopped off at Thursday Island. There, my dad had a friend uh, in the sort of naval cadets um, organisation, so we looked him up and uh, and had a meal with Joe up at Thursday Island for the night, and then headed off across the uh, Gulf of um, Carpentaria. Uh, that big sort of gulf at the top end of uh, Australia. Just so we headed straight across there, and went to a place called Gove, and which is really again a pretty isolated spot. And 
one was interesting being in the north of Australia that you don't see pretty much anywhere else along the sort of the eastern side and certainly down south is um, started to see Aboriginal settlements and a lot more Aboriginal culture evident. And so uh, we went to Gove and uh, that's just a big mining town. Uh, people, in fact, fly in and fly out and, and get jobs there purely on the mines and go for certain periods of time and earn good money because it's so remote. The mines um, know that they have to pay a pretty good wage to people to, just to keep them there. So you actually got quite a few yachties. There was quite a community there and a sailing club um, and quite a lot of Australians living aboard and uh, taking time out to <laughs> raise their cruising kitty up by, uh, by working in the mines there at Gove. So we, uh, we saw a few folks there, made a few friends, and then headed off and island hopped our way over to, uh, to Darwin, which is, I think was about another sort of two days um, sailing from Gove. And once we got what, to what Darwin... Are they, what are they mining up there? To be honest, I'm not sure. I think... Um, no, I'm, I'm really not sure. Okay. I think they, they mine quite a few things. Obviously, Australia is pretty mineral rich. But um, I can't recall exactly what they were mining at, uh, at Gove. A quick Google search will tell you, I'm sure. Just curious, just <laughs> off the top of my head, if you, if you knew. So I was just curious. That's all right. But uh, Yeah, I know that you got, uh, you got a lot of coal, a lot of iron ore, and, and my son-in-law was over there for, for the gold. So he worked for Barrick, and he, was, uh, they were, and he lived in Western Australia. So anyway, okay. Right. So yeah, it looks yeah, like yeah. there's and some. We got, we got, look, yeah, and we got friends in in um, northwest Australia. They work on the diamond mines and that sort of thing. So yeah, there's. I think there's all sorts of um, good uh, good minerals that come out of the ground up in the north. <clears throat> I see there's a national park up there as well, right on the tip, Sir Garig Gukabalu National Park. Is that uh, is that on Cape York? Ah, it doesn't give me the cape, but it's just uh, just a little bit uh, north and and west of uh, north and east of Darwin in that big bay. As you come around the big bay, it looks like you had to go oh. right around to get down to Darwin. So, be yeah, between, yeah, between Melville Island and the peninsula off the other side is where the national park is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's actually quite a lot of national parks and 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 areas that are protected because they're. Um, there are obviously areas of, uh, of, of natural beauty and also um, quite a lot of it is sacred lands. There's a lot of uh, lands up in the north of Australia that uh, the Aboriginals have, have been granted to have as their, their ancestral homelands, if you like. Obviously, they were a nomadic tribe, but um, again, in, in, it's a typical sort of situation where they've been displaced over so many years um, by the the Western influence coming in, that um, they have actually got certain lands now that are actually um, granted to them as their own uh, Aboriginal lands. So, no, it was, a, it was a really interesting time being up there. Uh, Darwin, once we got there, the interesting thing there was it had some of the biggest tides in Australia. Um, it had about uh, six, seven-meter tides. Wow. up there. Big and, tides. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so you obviously had to uh, had to anchor pretty carefully and that sort of thing. And so we were off. I think uh, Darwin Yacht Club is a little anchorage, <clears throat> and uh, there's mud flats sort of just off it. So you have to anchor such a long way out. But what they've done is they've actually um, excavated a good little channel all the way through, just wide enough to row a dinghy. <laughs> 
and so you can actually still row uh, at low tide in and get to the docks at the uh, at the sailing club. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm um, looking at so, here, and it looks like there's a big, like almost a real estate development with the yacht club inside there. Um, and I don't see the other yacht club. I'm trying to. F- oh, there it is. It's over on the sides. Guy City, Darwin. Okay, yeah. A couple yacht clubs, or a couple marinas, it looks like. And Cullen Bay, is that the one you're talking about? I think so, yeah. It was. Um, I think there's a sailing club on the, on the sort of uh, northern side. Um, right by the beach because there's some good beaches off on the north side, but obviously they're very uh, exposed that that side. So where I went was um, sail around uh, the the western end of of Darwin, around the port, and then tuck yourself up underneath uh, on the south side in the bay there. Yeah. Okay. And, I see it. Yeah. It looks like there's a big commercial port there as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of big fishing fleet up there. I think there's a lot of prawn boats and shrimpers and that sort of thing up there that um that work and obviously a lot of other fish as well so yeah how long did you stay in darwin um i think i stayed about um about a week uh maybe about 10 days we had a crew change there again nikki um had uh had to get back so she booked a bus and started the long journey back uh, down almost the length of australia down to uh to sydney and uh, a friend of mine that I knew in New Zealand um, used to live in the Bay of Islands working on a, um, a sort of day sail boat up there, the Tucker Thompson. And he is a, it was a Sicilian guy, Toto, or Salvatore was his name, but uh, Toto for short. And um, he was an interesting guy. He'd been backpacking for many, many years. Um, you know, at this stage, I was about 26 years old. And Toto was uh, 40, and he had uh, spent the majority of his life backpacking in the northern winters, so he would escape the cold of Sicily and uh, head off uh, wherever wherever the big silver birds took him and uh, get, in, get up to all sorts of adventures. And then he'd head home for the Sicilian summers and go and see his family and tend to his uh, olive groves and farm and that sort of thing. Mm. So he was a really interesting sort. Um, had uh, had a lot of fun in the 60s and teetered on the brink, I think, <laughs> with um, with with drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And uh, you know, some of the stories he says, quite a lot of his friends teetered on the brink as well and fell the wrong way. And luckily, Toto fell backwards and kept uh, kept going. So he had a, a lot of interesting stories to tell and um, had a very unique outlook on life. Um, he was a very mystical sort of chap, um, Toto. Probably still is, uh, I imagine. Um, I haven't seen him for a number of years. But he, he, he was categorically, um, his, his belief was that if he spent enough time on the sea, he would meet his mermaid. <laughs> and I don't really mean that in the metaphorical sense either. He really did believe in mermaids and he wanted to meet one <laughs> and, and get and get taken by the hand and, and led down into the depths and, and that sort of thing. So <laughs> so life on board with Toto was never really that dull. <laughs> he had a lot of stories always... to tell then, huh? Indeed, yeah, yeah. And he had also, because Indonesia was um, coming up ahead of us, it was it worked out very timely because Toto had actually spent quite a bit of time before through Indonesia. He had a bit of a grasp of the language uh, even before we got there. And he'd even he'd been up in um, Borneo, up in the um, forests up there, um, 
backpacking and he even spent some time with a tribe of Indians up there called the Dayak Indians and uh, managed to get them to kind of accept him to, to stay with, with their tribe for a little while and even had a tattoo on him that uh, was given in the old-fashioned world where they have a, a sharp um, sort of pick, wooden pick, and they use a hammer just to sort of tap it against your skin and keep dipping it in ink. And he was very proud of his uh, Indian Dayak um, tattoo that he got. So, yeah, you know, he, you know that kind of measures up um, or gives you an idea of some of the experiences that he'd gone through. Um, so, no, it was good. It was good to have Toto aboard, and he was a lot of good advice and a lot of good stories to, um, to keep me entertained. So you're heading to the Indonesian islands then. So did you, let me ask you a question. When you um, sailed uh, into, uh, into Australia from New Zealand, did you have to go through the customs bureaucracy or was there any problem in doing that? Talk about the little bit of bureaucracy you had to deal with. Sure. In fact, um, get, we're heading back to New Zealand uh, just quickly and explain that one. Obviously, I, I was born in Australia myself, so I've got dual nationality, a British and an Australian passport, and uh, the Kiwis honour that. So you've got reciprocal rights if you've got an Australian or Kiwi passport to live in either Australia or New Zealand. So um, it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a nice um, situation to be in. But, of course, your boat is a different thing. You're bringing it in, and, of course, it's uh, liable for customs duty, etc. So once I was in New Zealand for the first year, I was actually contemplating heading off again um, because, of course, the boat's year stamp was up, and, um, and customs were starting to put a bit of pressure, saying, well, when are you, when are you, when are you heading off? Um, and luckily I found out that um, they actually have a, a rule in New Zealand that if you're a first-time settler, so if, you, if you're arriving in the country for the first time as, a, as an immigrant, you can bring some of your, um, your, your, your worldly goods with you, and a boat is included. And basically, it's on a sliding scale. So they have it tracked, they have a valuation on the boat, and then it's a sliding scale for two years of, of the duty that you'd have to pay. So basically, if you sold it as soon as you get there, you'd have to pay the full um, you know, duty and then it just sort of goes down in 14, no, hang on a minute, 24 increments over, um, over two years. Um, and so effectively, you know, the boat was, was, was imported after that point. But when I got to Australia, um, again, I was Australian, but the boat was British registered. I did have to post the bond uh, with the, um, with the uh, customs, basically equivalent to paying the duty. Um, but it was a refundable bond. So basically, I did pay the duty up front when I got there, uh, or you know, as I as I got there, I had to do it after um, I think maybe about um, two months or so stay. And um, <clears throat> but then I had that in a in a official letter and a refundable uh, bond. So once I was in Darwin, I um, I showed my um, my exit papers and the process of getting it returned and back into my bank account uh, started up. So, so yeah, that's kind of how it played out to uh, spending longer times in, in that part of the world. So you had to uh, go through it, pay it, get it back. And then Darwin is where you left from to go to the Indonesian islands in. To head up to Indonesia. Yeah. And it, I don't know what it's like these days, but back in the day when I was there back in 1990, six 
you had to you had to get in touch with an agent in Indonesia. So I did all of this by fax in Australia, and you had to get an, an agent to get an official cruising permit set up to go to Indonesia, and you needed to have your crew list set. So it was important that I knew that Toto was going to join me and he was going to be my crew. So you have to have all your passport details. You have to send all this backwards and forwards to the agent who then organizes your cruise permit. And you even have to put down your itinerary, your your ideal um, number of stops and the places that you're going to stay, etc., etc. And the word was is excuse me, the word was out that as you, uh, as you, excuse me, got your cruising permit, you actually had to pull into each and every one of the islands and, and, and bays or, or ports that you'd described and go and find the port captain and get your papers stamped. So it actually sounded a bit like a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, but uh, anyway, as we arrived, we, we, we sailed for about, I think, seven very calm days to get to uh, Kupang in uh, East Timor. And, uh, and once we got there, we, we, this was the place that our agent lived, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Ramin, I think his name was. And um, we met him on the beach. I gave him a bottle of uh, whiskey for his help, <laughs> above his fee, of course, as well. And, um, and then we, he sort of set us up with all our papers and, and got ourselves uh, sorted out. And it transpired that actually further down the track, we, we only came, once we got to a major port like in Bali and places like that, you then had to show your papers and check in with the authorities. But all the other little islands and bays that you went, it actually ended up that you, you hardly saw any officialdom anyway. So it really didn't become a, a, a bureaucratic nightmare after all. It was absolutely fine. Um, but it was just a big process to go through um, and so obviously it was good to be in a place like Australia with all the uh, communications and faxes and that sort of thing to, to get it sorted beforehand. I don't know what it's like today, whether they still have the same situation or whether, of course, it might be a lot easier online. Um, but, yeah, we, we arrived in Kupang and it was an amazing experience because we made a landfall at night. and We had fairly good, good charts to get in and it was a fairly easy uh, approach. Uh, through a through a, a passage between the mainland and, and an offlying island, and then a quick windward uh, tacking um, to get into the bay and the, and the anchorage. And what I love about arriving at night is that everything looks mysterious, and you're trying to make out shapes and buildings and sounds, all that sort of thing. And so you put your anchor down, and and this was the first time that at four in the morning you hear the call of the um, the call to prayer, the, um, the, the, the Muslim call to prayer coming out, ringing out through town. And, uh, and suddenly, you know, it just you really, really realize you've entered a whole new world. And, um, and so we woke up and, uh, and so began our um, Indonesian experience. It was um, fantastic. All the foods and sights and smells and everything very much a different world than I'd uh, been used to before. Wow. And in, uh, in, in, Timor in Kupang, we took a bit of time out um, to protect Cookie's mainsail because um, after this length of time, she's got a three-stay rig. So the four-stay is, is, you know, the mast is held up with just two shrouds, which are swept back about three feet or so from the um, from the mast. So 
so they act as backstays as well. But obviously, when you let the main out on a bit of a reach, the um, the mainsail starts pressing sometimes on the um, on the wires. So we made up some baggy wrinkle, some good old fashioned baggy wrinkle, and uh, went up the mast and up the bosun's chair and spent some time tying them up. So it actually looked like Cookie had uh, some woolly sheep up in a rigging. <laughs> What did you make the baggy wrinkle out of? Was it nylon line or was it manila line? What did you make it out of? Yeah, just out of nylon line. Um, just uh, some rope that I had spare on board the boat. You just chop it up into, I think they were about um, four inch, five inch lengths uh, of, of fibers. And uh, what you have is two strings, two sort of thin strings that you set up taut. And you just do a sheep shank. So you just sort of take the fiber ends, the four-inch ends, around your, your double uh, line of, uh, of string. And then the bitter ends, you just loop down through and pull it tight. Hmm. And you just do a whole, a whole ton of those. So really what you have is you have, you have a long string with just tails of, of, um, of rope fibers about sort of about two to three inches long, all hanging down off off this long line. And we'd make them about, I think we ended up making them about sort of uh, three feet long. And then what you do is uh, you've got this long length of these, um, these this fluffy line, and, and you go up into the rigging, you whip and, and seize one end onto your wire, and then you just wind very tightly your long cord with all the fluffy fibers sticking outwards. So it ends up being like a big sort of um, very fluffy, soft um, pipe cleaner, effectively. That's uh, that's up there, hmm. and I made them. I made them. I, I positioned them just at the point where the seams of the mainsail touched the wire, um, when the main was uh, fully um, fully hoisted. So uh, so I think we had about three three or four baggy wrinkles on either shroud. And uh, gave Cookie a very different look after that. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, but it was an interesting experience to um, to just take a little bit of old world um, seafaring sort of um, law or, or, or rope work and apply it to a fairly uh, fairly modern type boat. It was good. So this was basically to, to protect your mainsail from chafe more than anything else, which is what the intent is, right? That's right. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, Rory, we've gone on for about uh, 45 minutes, and I think that's oh. about uh, about the limit. I think next time we're going to start out with your adventures sailing through Indonesia and see where we get from there. Thanks, Rory. I appreciate it. Okay, Franz. Great. Uh, until next time. Talk to you later. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please Write a review on iTunes if you have thoughts, comments, suggestions. If you want to meet me, if you're coming through Salt Lake, drop me an email, franz1 at medsailor.com. And thank you for listening. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in.
I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you? Every once in a while, you just gotta say, what the heck? And take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs> Thank you.